0: Everybody in serial killer country, my name is Brittany Ransom.
1: And my name is Brian Joyner.
0: And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the killers we love to learn about. Each week, Brian and I discuss two true crime stories that resonated with us this week. And then I will lead you down the darker path of learning about who a killer was, how they grew up, how they killed, and most importantly, how they got caught. And then Brian ends our podcast with a touch of the paranormal, a story about cryptids or just the creepier side of life. And as usual, we'd like to say thank you for listening.
1: <laughs> Ooh, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, this week in true crime, I actually talked about this story on TikTok and people were pretty excited about it. But I know that uh the cross-section of I think people who do both is pretty small. And so Brian, have you ever heard of Baby Holly?
1: It sounds familiar.
0: So baby Holly was a little girl who was found in the woods uh, near her parents who were dead about 40 years ago.
1: Yeah, it sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. I think I heard the story.
0: Yep. Uh, and uh, pretty much they were newlyweds. Uh, they were gosh, my brain. Well, the, the grandma is the one who's left now. Uh, her name is Donna Casasanta. And uh, baby Holly Marie Klaus, who is now 42 years old and the mother of five, was located. Uh, her parents were Harold Dean Klaus and Tina Gail Klaus. And they disappeared in sometime between December of 1979 and January of 1980. And here's the thing. The parents were only identified last year
1: what
0: they have been unidentified remains for most of the time that holly has also been missing uh of course to her she wasn't missing
1: right Um, of course
0: (laughs) but a lot of this is thanks to those dna tests that everybody loves to take and uh essentially there was a match uh and Interestingly enough, uh, when Donna Casasanta learned um, that her son was dead, it was pretty wild. And an interesting thing happened uh, that we've learned since then. So, after her parents were killed, right, mm. um, Donna Casasanta gets a phone call from these women. And mind you, this is Texas. They had just moved there, they were new to the area. So, virtually nobody knew they were missing Uh, um and only donna knew that she hadn't heard from her son and somebody who was out walking their dog in the woods as usual that's the way that seems to always find you know people in the woods uh (laughs) and the baby had been dropped off at like a church uh but she got a phone call from these two women specifically one who who called herself sister susan and sister susan had her son's car and was like Meet us in Daytona and we'll sell you your son's car back. Uh, uh, Donna, of course, tells the police, um, but there's nothing they could really do. They couldn't hold them on anything and they couldn't prove that they hadn't just found the car uh, and, and taken it. But Sister Susan said that she was a part of a, a religious organization that owned, that believed in separating men and women. And it's just... It makes no sense why this is probably who they think killed them, but they have no idea. It makes no sense because they didn't even keep the baby. Um, Holly ended up getting adopted. uh, But her grandmother says that like they met over zoom and it was an intense moment. And, uh, She looks just like her mom. Like, there's a photo of her holding a picture of her parents when she's a baby. And she looks a lot like her mother. And uh, her grandmother was like, they even sound the same.
1: Wow. That's wild.
0: Yeah. But uh, they're still trying to figure out who killed them. But, I mean, that's probably going to... uh...
1: I feel like it's going to reveal itself real soon.
0: You think so? I My brain thinks it's not going to happen. But at least for Donna, I feel kind of happy for her because she just found out she has five great grandkids.
1: That's so awesome. <laughs>
0: so she at least has a family to reach out to.
1: Oh, I feel that's, a, oh that's a nice.
0: It's that's a good a nice one for you before yes. I take you down the awful path today.
1: Well, guess what? I think we are on the same wavelength today because guess what what i i got a nice one for you too all right okay um so earlier this week a corgi in lancaster oh was, was shot in the head what yeah who he, would he, hurt a baby i don't know he, he's adorable um his name is arthur mm-hmm and, yeah, so from what I've seen from the uh, PSPCA, for um, from their Instagram profile, um, they found him, and, like, it appeared that he was shot in the head, but he is alive. He He's alive, um, shot right between his eyes, and whoever shot him left him for dead, but, like, he crawled under a fence, oh. into, like, a, a, I guess, uh a family someone's family's farm and I guess they brought him into the you know PSPCA and t- like it took him two weeks to like heal up but um no 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 it took him two two weeks until they called him. No, oh no, God, goodness gracious! He was like running no, away it was from t- them. It, it was two weeks ago. It was it happened two weeks ago. I'm you're sorry.
0: having a hard time right now.
1: I'm so sorry. <laughs> it happened two weeks ago All that they right. that they got this call from this family, the PSPCA, that they had found a dog who wandered into their like their property mm-hmm. and he had some type of wound on his head and like he he ran from somebody obviously. Who tried to kill him. Um he is alive. Um there I guess there, there was a bullet that was left into his in his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, um he had he was very very badly taken care of. He had fleas, he had ear infections, he, he was anemic. Boy, this dog had it rough. And then To, like, top it off, someone tried to shoot him in the head. Oh, someone did shoot him in the head. Um, Yeah. But they're searching, investigating to see, like, who would even do this. Um, Who would do this? Why someone would do this to, like, to a little corgi, a little cute guy. He's so adorable. Um, (laughs) But they're hoping that he makes a full recovery. Um, he's obviously still alive. He, he's, he, uh, they had a video of him, like, running around and stuff. It's just adorable. But, like, I, I saw this and I was like, okay, we need something cute today. <laughs> and I was like, ooh, hey, how about this? This is something that is crime-related because someone tried to kill somebody or something. Yeah. And it I was mean, a cute.
0: This was an attempted murder.
1: It was. It really was. But he's alive and still adorable. So, it's, there you have it.
0: Well, at least he's okay.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, last week we talked about Cliff Clifford Olson Junior.'s uh, the first half of his life, we'll say, up until about forty years old, and we kind of left off on the place that uh, Cliff had gotten himself in trouble with uh, attacking a sex worker, and pretty brutally harming her and he'd spent a couple weeks in prison. They did not check his record and therefore he got out. Uh, I also mentioned that Clifford went back home and discovered that his girlfriend, Joan was pregnant. And so while Joan had initially been mad at him at this point, she was just worried. And now he was back. So, so happy. Yay. (laughs) Uh, And you would think like, now I have all these important things to worry about. But uh, Clifford's like, I'm going to go out to celebrate. And uh, just like the night that he found the prostitute, he got drunk. He took a bunch of pills and he began to think about those darker things And we mentioned last week for anybody who didn't listen, you should go back and listen because there's a lot of context to who this guy is. But he, his basis for sex was linked to violence, which is a really bad combination. And even though he had found, I wouldn't call it love, but he found something with Joan uh, that was gentler and kinder and he did like it. He just can't shake the fact that he he likes the violence with sex and he wants to indulge in it. And so on November 17th, 1980, he found Christine Weller. She was 12 years old and she was kidnapped from Surrey, British Columbia. Um, Christine lived with her unemployed parents and it was a pretty dismal experience for her. She kind of escaped the depressing nature of her household by going to the local mall, and she pretty much spent the entire day there with her classmates. Uh she couldn't afford to buy anything, but it was just nice to be around friends, and even after her friends all went home because they, you know, normal rules for kids who have parents who are keeping watch on them is you get your butt home before nightfall. Those were my rules when I was a little kid. with uh, my grandmother, uh, when the street lights come on, you better make your way back to the house. Great. But <laughs> uh, Christine didn't want to go home because she didn't want to walk into a house where her parents were upset and you know fighting about the fact that they didn't have any money and you know you need to get a job and yada yada yada. So she stayed as long as she could until pretty much the place closed. And so she started making her way home, just walking down the street. And that's when she met Clifford. We don't exactly know what he said to her, but it had to have been pretty convincing because Christine wasn't, she wasn't a naive kid. She was from a rougher part of town and she definitely would have been wise to how older men kind of hit on young girls. Mm -hmm. Um, they definitely think that she turned down his offer to drive her home because she had a bicycle and it couldn't fit into his truck, um, which is more than likely when he threatened her with a knife and threw her bike into the bushes, which were recovered on the side of the road later. Um, we know that she was threatened with a knife because he cut her not deep enough to kill her. But it was enough to let her know that he would. Mm. And Clifford took her to uh, the Fraser River Dykes in Richmond uh, because there weren't a lot of people there But just because it's so cold at this point in Canada. And we know that he threw her into the mud and we know that he attempted to rape her, but they were never able to find any forensic evidence to show that she was assaulted. And that makes sense because there's a certain level of overkill with Christine's murder. She was stabbed in her heart twice and in her liver four times. Um, And for people who aren't well versed in forensics it's not exactly easy to stab someone in the heart. There's a lot of bones in the way of that. Which would mean that he either broke her ribs that were in front of her heart, like this was this was uh, aggression and it was violence and it was because he couldn't uh, perform, which mm. is really common in these kinds of crimes. We're talking about uh, sexual sadism. We don't spend too much time talking about these kind of killers because they're real rough. Right. Uh, yeah. Christine's parents uh, didn't notice that she was gone right away. But after a couple days, they filed a police report and the police wrote her off as a teenage runaway because she was from a rough part of town with crappy, broke, poor parents. And then on Christmas morning in 1980, a man walking his dog along the Fraser River found her corpse. Now, the police jump into action and they pull up the list of every known sexual convict in Richmond. And they bring in all these people. And Clifford doesn't come up on any of those lists.
1: Yeah, I like how you said convict.
0: Ah, yes, yes. Because you can't just... He he wasn't convicted. Mm -hmm. In fact, they bring Clifford in as an informant. And they're like, listen, we heard from other police that you knew things. So, you know... Let us know if you hear something. He's like, you know, I'll keep, I'll keep my ear to the street. Now Clifford decides... So essentially, Clifford and Joanne are like, let's do this. Let's get married. Uh, and they're trying to set a date for the spring. And she's pregnant. It's a very bustling time. And Clifford decides that he's going to settle down. Before he's going to settle down, though, he needs to head out and see the rest of the world. And so he starts driving through a bunch of old places Uh, he heads up into British Columbia uh, to see BCP because the prison was officially shut down all the way and had become a strange sort of tourist attraction at this point he actually buys a ticket and walks through the prison as a tourist and while he's there one of the old guards from the prison is there as a tour guide
1: Oh, is he The
0: two of them pass by each other easily a dozen times throughout the tour and none make the connection until Clifford is standing next to one of his old cells and the guard looks at him and makes a phone call to some of his friends who are still working as uh, officers mm-hmm. and they're like he's wanted he's at large remember Clifford escaped <laughs> Mm-hmm. and was never caught right so by the time that clifford leaves the prison done with his tour the police are waiting for him outside uh they add a month onto his most recent sentence and he is sent to the Matsky institution in abbotsford as far as Joan knows he is having this weird sort of solo bachelor party and there's still a couple months before the wedding So Clifford's like, I'm not telling her nothing. Hmm. All I have to do is get out in time for the wedding, marry Joan, and we're fine. This time he's in prison. He's got new interest in gangs. He's not trying to make any new friends. He just wants to keep his head down, do his time, get out on parole. And that's exactly what happens. He drives back to Joan, and she's like, did you enjoy your cross-country trip? And he's like, yup. (laughs) (laughs) Clifford uh, has them sell the house, Joan's house, and relocate, mainly because of the rumors about the attack on the prostitute. He didn't want Joan finding out. So he finds a new job, and he gets a new house in the city of Coquitlam. He gets a job for the superintendent in town for an apartment block, the same place that he rents the place. Uh, they start house hunting after that like apartment find because they're like, well, once we have the baby, we're going to need a bigger place. But for now, this is enough. Um, and Stephen Olson would arrive shortly after their move. Clifford is happy. He has a wife, a child, a job. No outstanding warrants for his arrest anymore. He starts, Anymore, he starts going to church every Sunday. Joan is really happy. They they get to learn the Bible. He can quote it at this point. But while they're they're planning the wedding, the urges begin again. And Clifford fixates on building this persona in his new town. He's now the sweet older man who's kind to all the kids in the neighborhood. And it doesn't seem odd at first that he's always talking to all the little girls in the neighborhood and complimenting them and giving them little gifts. It doesn't seem strange because he d- he did for all the kids in the community. He made sure to never show anybody too much personal attention. But it's one of those things that people should have been afraid of. I'm going to go on a limb and say that if there is an adult who is spending a lot of time with your child and giving them presents and things, I'm not going to say you shouldn't necessarily be worried, but you should be watchful. Yeah. uh, Keep an eye out. Yeah. Just to make sure that it's, it stays a a lovely kid grown-up relationship and nothing more. So here's the thing though. Clifford, just like, plenty of the other serial killers we've talked about can only keep up this facade for so long before he goes back to this need for violence. There was a point where he tried to introduce like slightly more aggressive sex to Joan, but she got more pregnant and he was worried that he couldn't do what he really wanted. So he stopped doing that. So I think that's kind of why there's a delay here between, um, the killing in november and then april um i think it's partially because he got that initial satisfaction from killing christine weller but also because he did kind of sort of coerce joan into something strangely like violent but not super violent but either way it wasn't really enough to kind of state this this growing horror inside of him and so in Clifford's mind, he's just like, listen, I have to do these things. And then I'm going to spend the rest of my days doing good things for Joan and for Steven, who isn't born yet. But I'll, I'll let you know when that happens, because there's, there's very clear lines as to when he does certain things. One is, ha, huh, wow. But uh, either way, that d- only lasted him until April, five months. And then he just had to do something. And so he had spent the previous months kind of prospecting and looking for a kid in his neighborhood who would be the perfect victim. And her name was Colleen Marion Dagnalt. She was 13 years old. And when she wasn't at school, she virtually spent all her time alone in her home. Typical latchkey kid. And Colleen had pretty much told him as much. So on April 16th, 1981, he offered, he sees her and he's like, hey, you know, I'm going to have a weekend job uh, opening with the apartment complex and you can get some money and, you know, maybe be out of the house, get a couple job skills. And she's pretty excited. He's like, hey, I'll drive you to the office. We can fill out some paperwork. And when she gets in his car, he offers her a drink from a bottle of schnapps he has in his car. And Colleen took a swig, uh, unaware that this entire bottle of schnapps is drugged. Um, We do know that Clifford sexually assaulted her and dragged her into the woods and beat her to death with a hammer. Uh, She would not be found until September. Her skull was virtually pulverized, which, again, let the investigators know that Her killer had a lot of just pent up anger. The kind of anger that it doesn't make sense that you would take out on a child. Now when Colleen goes missing, the police do their due diligence. But just like Christine, they're like, I mean, here's this kid who spends all her time in the house. Maybe she met somebody. Maybe she ran away. They went to the superintendent of her apartment building. Hey, it's Clifford. And he's like, Oh, yeah, I know her. She's always at her house. And he tells her he tells the police all about her routine and her family life. And while the police are investigating Colleen's disappearance, Clifford kills again, this time April 22nd, 1981, and he kidnaps Darren Todd Johnsred. Darren was 16 years old and he lived in Westminster. He used the same ruse that he used on Colleen, picking up the teen, walking near a mall, offering him a job at a construction site. That they picked up a six pack to celebrate, and when Darren wasn't paying attention, he roofied the drink. Um, Darren was unfortunately a perfect victim for Clifford because his family was new to Westminster, and so a lot of people didn't notice him missing. Uh, Clifford took the unconscious boy to the DeRoche uh, area where he prepared, he had already previously prepared a kill site. Clifford would admit to the police later that he'd been more violent with Darren because he wanted the boy to wake up and fight him. Uh, Okay. Darren was found less than two weeks later and he had injuries everywhere. Broken bones, a cracked skull, stab wounds. Uh, Unlike some killers who are changing their methodology as a forensic countermeasure, Clifford is doing different things to see how they feel. He's, he's enjoying the different kinds of murder weapons and the different ways he can hurt people.
1: Don't like that.
0: No, we don't like that because not being able to have a solid victimology hurts the investigation and also not being able to have uh, a solid uh, methodology harms the, I mean, we, we find these guys based on patterns and he's not operating on a pattern at all. His first two victims are, I mean, we got 13, 14, 16, I guess they're all technically adolescents, but that changes. There are much younger victims. Um, Generally, we know that pedophiles have a one particular they like either boys or girls. So mm-hmm. it's pretty rare that it gets mixed up.
1: Right.
0: So he's operating completely different from what we know. And in 1981, the, the profiles that we used to find these kinds of killers had only been around for about a decade. So if that. So it's very new and not everybody's using it. In the interim the police don't really know what to do. They're like there's a lot of kids just suddenly going missing around here. But one stabbed, but not assaulted. The teen boys a victim of a homosexual rape and you know how we feel about the queers in the
1: 80s. Oh, they God.
0: didn't like us. Right. So <laughs> uh, the ages They're are icky di-
1: to talk about. <laughs>
0: Right, they didn't even interview Clifford about Darren because Clifford wasn't a known homosexual.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the weeks before the wedding, which was scheduled to be on May 15, 1981, Joan needs Clifford, by So he's like, I'm here, I'll do whatever you want. And uh, four days after his wedding, however, he abducted, assaulted, and murdered Sandra Wolfsteiner. He picked her up. Uh, when she was trying to get home because she was going to be late for her curfew. And she had been in her boyfriend's house and he had originally agreed to give her a ride home. But when they got into an argument, he told her, find your own way home. So she just started walking. Um, Clifford saw her and he was just like, you want a ride? She didn't really want to hitchhike. It was just that she was... Dealing with the stress of the situation of like, great, I got a, in a fight with my boyfriend. If I come home late, now I'm going to get in a fight with my parents. Right. And here's Clifford. And he's this old guy with gray hair, just smiling, offering her a ride back to town. He didn't even have to work too hard to get her to drink anything because she was having an awful friggin' day. And so she willingly took the flask from him. Um, this time... Uh, he used chloral hydrate and then he took her to the Chilliwack Lake, dragged her out in the grass. Um, She was out so cold, she didn't wake up during the physical assault or the murder. Like, not a good drug to use.
1: Mm.
0: And I wrote something about chloral hydrate and then I deleted it. Uh (laughs) Um, It's a sedative that's used to treat short-term insomnia, Um, and so he just he gave her too much. She she was sleep sleep sleep. Oh, Um, this is we know a lot of these details because later on he tells the police everything in excruciating horrific detail, and I just have to tell you that I am giving you the cliff notes version.
1: Oh well, thank you. We appreciate it so much.
0: It's the worst. (laughs) And, well, I'll I'll like later on. I'll talk to you about the day that he gave them this, these, these uh, confessions. But the, um, on uh, Sandra, he used a five-inch iron spike and smashed it into her skull. Um, she didn't die from the first uh, strike. And he proceeded to hammer the nail into other parts of her body and watch as she reacted. And these were obviously involuntary, you know, spasms because of pain. But she was not fully aware of what's going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, afterward, he buries her in a shallow grave. And uh, he's like, bury the body this time. Don't want him to find her like they found Darren. Right. After Sandra's death, he focuses on the birth of his son, Stephen. And the new baby was a bit of a high for him. He didn't need to kill anybody for a little bit. He went back to being that lovely guy who was super kind to everybody. and He, obvi- he thought focusing on his son would help him, but he slipped up. He started showing too much attention to a four-year-old in the apartment complex. And she told her parents. So the police were called in, and Clifford was interrogated. He made them think that this was just a confusion, you know. This is she's confused, um, and the police believed him, and so did her parents. And actually, people in the community were mad that he'd been accused of impropriety. Um,
1: wow! Yeah, this one fucking believes a victim.
0: Well after this brush with the police Clifford was so mad that he went out on June 21st 1981 to find someone to take that anger out on. So he leaves Coquitlam and he's outside of the city and he sees Ada Court. She's 13 years old and she's walking home on North Road after a babysitting job. Um, He offered her a ride because she looked tired and she didn't really respond to him because again the seventies were really the era of hitchhiking. Mm -hmm. She's just like, leave me alone, dude. (laughs) Um, and so he kind of kept hammering away at her until he brought up the idea that, you know, he's like, Oh, well you're leaving a babysitting job. I have an administration job and that's probably way better than, you know, dealing with people's brats all day long. And And you could do it on the weekend and you can make more money. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, you know, we can do your interview in the car as I drive you home. Mm -hmm. Clifford even played into the role that he was so grateful that he found, you know, such a mature young woman to to do this job. He gave her the flash. She took a swig. And just like with all the other children, it ended the same way. Um, Ada was killed with multiple hammer blows to her skull. Uh, he also uh, used rope to strangle her with and syringes to try and inject air embolisms into her bloodstream. Um, He told the police that he did all manner of horrible things to her, but we don't entirely know what he did because he hid her body very well Uh, He drove out to Weaver Lake and he dug a grave and dropped her in. Um, Ada wasn't found for a very long time. She was one of the bodies that was virtually mummified. Um, On his way back home, Clifford kind of thought about the night and he realized that killing. Even though he was doing more horrible, horrible things, was it giving him the same kind of satisfaction as he was getting before? And maybe it's the stress, you know, of having a new baby in the house and he still has
1: to go to work and You know what? Yeah, I've heard that, you know, having having a kid does like dampen the murdering <laughs> you know what I mean? The murdering sensation. Yeah. The joy you get from murdering, it does like kill that a lot. Pun intended. There you
0: go. <laughs> He's like, listen, I'm just going to have to do this more often. And, you know, it's just more of these little sacrifices to make sure that I can take care of my family. Sometime between that crime in June and the, and the start of July... He gets in trouble for sexually assaulting a 16-year-old girl whose name was never released to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if this was Clifford's attempt to attack someone who wasn't drugged, but it didn't go very well because she screamed. She broke free. She ran to the police. The police pulled him out of bed in the middle of the night, locked him up. He spent all night thinking about how he was going to talk to the police about this. They show up to interrogate him the following, following morning. They have nothing. He tells the police that he and the teenager had been drinking and he didn't realize she was underage and she had freaked out when things had turned sexual. He walks out of the police station with a court date and nothing more than a warning.
1: Wow. They fucking love him.
0: Now, the next six murders happen in the course of one month. So we have July 2nd, 1981, Simon Parkington, nine abducted raped and strangled exactly one week after that judy cosma who was 14 and from new westminster also strangled and sexually assaulted she was uh found near weaver lake on july 25th then we have uh raymond king who was 15 abducted on the 23rd uh raped and bludgeoned to death with a hammer uh sigrin i'll mess her name up she's from germany uh, and that's kind of almost one of the saddest ones because she was just here on vacation. Her name was Sigrun, Sigrun Arnd. I just like to say people's names, right? Uh, And she was 18, and she was just a German tourist, and she was also raped and bludgeoned to death on the 25th. Two days after that, he kidnapped Terry Lynn Carson, 15, and then he killed and kidnapped uh Luis... Uh, Louise Chartrand she was 17 years old and that was on July 30th so I'm kind of going to go through these murders because I also want to explain the movement of the police as they're happening right now with all of them it's the same thing coerce the kid into the truck offer them a drink drug them if it's alcohol soda either way it's always laced with something um, sometimes though it was just drugs. Um, sometimes he used his tools, which he kept under the front seat, his little murder box, to torture them. Other times he strangled them. Uh Simon Parkington was strangled by hand since he was so small, and he was buried in this particular uh wet soil by the river. Um once Simon disappeared, the police determined these are not runaways. And we have a problem. So the press is in on this at this point. And they're like, these kids are all being kidnapped and killed in the lower mainland area. Uh, Canada has a serial killer. And as soon as they pick up on that in terms of the media, the media also pinpoint the police. How does it take you six kids missing to realize that this is a problem? Mm. And of course, the other issue is just as the police are beginning to catch up, He's killing five more at the same time. This happens all in the course of one month. When Judy Cosma goes missing, the newspapers immediately zoom in on her. She's a potential victim. And one of Clifford's friends tells the police that he saw a girl who looked like Judy in Clifford's car. But the police are like, listen, we need you to go on record. And he's like, no, 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 no. He backs out. He's like, I'm not sure. It was just a girl who kind of looked like the girl in the picture. Judy's family goes public on TV. They request information. Clifford responds by looking up this family's information, calling them and mocking them about the death of their child. Come on. He tells Judy's parents that she's dead and that she sobbed and begged him and pleaded with him. In fact, he had recorded her screams, and he played them for her parents, or at least who he thought was her parents. In fact, who he actually called was the Cosmo's landlord. Mm. The police put a wiretap on the landlord's phone. And side note, even though the mom didn't have to hear her child like screaming, it's real bad just hearing that.
1: Yeah. Someone terrible. calls
0: your house. But either way, they put a wiretap on the phone, but Clifford never calls that number back. He's not stupid. Now, this is the first time that the police realized that he had recordings of the crimes. And they learned that this serial killer's trophies aren't clothing or items. It's their voices. This is a detail that could be used to find him. But it's real bad. Now, Raymond King is picked up just like all the other boys with an offer for a job. But Raymond actually fought him back and ran away. And he probably would have gotten away, except they ended up fighting and uh, Raymond fell down an embankment where he broke his legs. Um, Clifford then climbed down the embankment and bashed the boys head in with a rock. Sigrun Arn was just naive. She thought that all the people she met in Canada were so kind and nice. And so when the stranger offered her a ride, she was like, okay. Um, it was after Sigrin's murder that the police began to watch Clifford. And they didn't think he was the murderer, but they were like, he's got to know. He's got to know something. He always knew something.
1: Oh, yeah, of course.
0: So they bring him in for questioning and they ask him over and over again, are there any new criminals in town? Do you, you know a lot of these children? How do you know these children? Clifford's like, well, how much will you pay me if I find this out for you? You know, if I go undercover like I used to. And the police are like, listen, we've got discretionary funds, but you gotta give us something to go on here. And so Clifford in his greed makes a stupid move. And he's like, listen, I don't know who did this, but I think I know where the bodies might be. And he tells them some of the locations saying that, you know, he heard it through the grapevine. But this does not make any logical sense.
1: Yeah. Okay, first of all, I'm still pissed, even though I realize... Like, I remembered that you told me that I was going to be upset this episode because the fucking police paid him to tell. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 him. wait till
0: you find out how much and just how this goes down. No, I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's bad. Uh, so here's the thing the police are like, yeah, yeah, we'll look into that. And they're like, okay, either he's the killer or he's an accomplice. Mm
1: hmm but they're like
0: sure we'll pay you having no intention to pay him they put him under 24-hour surveillance unfortunately it wasn't it didn't get approved fast enough because uh terry lynn carson got abducted in the same area where he had picked up christine weller he actually had seen her a bunch of times as he drove around town and one day after casing her he stopped and offered her a ride. same as before, plies her with drinks, takes her out to Chilliwack, assaults her while she's under the influence and waits until she wakes up, then strangles her and stabs her to death. Um, I believe that Terry's murder was him attempting to relive his first one. He picked her up in the same community and he committed the same crime. Um, he, he, he killed her in the same way. And this isn't, uncommon for serial killers that first kill is like getting high on a a drug Um, and just like somebody who abuses drugs (laughs) the same amount of drugs no longer are effective with killing they can never recapture that feeling so they go into a frenzy trying to get the adrenaline rush from before clifford is in the middle of a frenzy as far as like how the fbi defines this But unlike, say, serial killer Ed Kemper, he's not self-aware enough to understand the compulsion. And just three days after killing Terry, he's back out on the street hunting for another victim. And that was Louise Chartrand on July 30th. Louise was the oldest victim at 17 years old, and she was on her way to work uh, in Maple Ridge, British Columbia. He offered her a ride to take her the rest of the way. And Louise wasn't unaware of the risks. She more than likely had seen the news stories, but Clifford knew how to turn on the charm when he needed it. And so she accepted the ride, but she very quickly realized they were driving away from her job pretty quickly. She refused his offer to drink anything, and she even tried to talk her way out of the car. Um, When she went to try and open the door, he hit her in the head with a hammer and knocked her out. Um, he took her up to Whistler Mountain and pretty much did anything possible that he could to try and give himself some semblance of satisfaction. But it just wasn't doing anything. And virtually as soon as he buried Louise, he went back out on the road looking for another victim that night. Now, unbeknownst to Clifford, the police assemble a quiet ta- a task force very quietly who are following him all day long. They even watch him commit other crimes like burglary. And they're like, Oh, so that explains why he has so much money because he's working his regular job and also burglarizing. Like he must've been going out virtually every night. And when he wasn't trying to like find victims, he's just stealing stuff. Mm. But they're like, listen, we don't care if he burglarizes a home. We'll deal with that later. Plus he's already been to prison 20 times for burglary, and they watched him go and buy drugs, do drugs. Um, They took notes about how he was living like a, a complete double life. And it was something that his wife didn't know about. But I'm just gonna, this isn't a situation like Judith with the Green River Killer. I think Joan just like didn't wanna see anything. Because Clifford is not doing a good job Like, at hiding things. Like, she's like, he's home. He's, look at that. He's feeding the baby. Wonderful. Good, good, good almost husband. Good husband. (laughs) But, like, outside of that, he seems erratic. (laughs) Randomly getting wasted every night. Like, and they also noticed that, like, he would just take off and drive. Hours in a random direction. And then he would stop in a new city. And he would talk to all these different people. And they just kind of watched this go on. For about two weeks. Um, This was an exceptionally expensive surveillance op. He is costing them so much money and gas. And this is when gas was like $1.25. Oh wow. So they're like. When is he going to do something? They didn't have to wait too long. August 12th. He pretty much spent uh, hours driving back and forth uh, over Vancouver Island until he sees two young girls hitchhiking and they were on a road near Port Alberni, and the police are sitting there a distance and they can see virtually everything. It's nighttime. He has the light on the Jeep and the girls are kind of talking to him through the window and they're kind of going back and forth and these particular officers are struggling. Because they're like, if we pick the wrong time, we lose the opportunity to get him. But what if he picks these girls up and we lose him and he kills both of them? So they're pretty much sitting there. They're like, but if we you know, if we, we pick him up too early, well, giving two girls a ride home isn't illegal. You know? Right. And so they're kind of arguing as this is going on. <laughs> And this goes on for like another 20, 30 minutes as the girls are kind of, I guess, bartering with him too. And the two girls walk around and climb into the truck, one in the passenger seat and one in the like little back seat. Um, And the officers are like, you know what? Screw it. And they turn on the siren and pull him over, pull the girls out of the truck. And then they kind of, as they have him like cuffed in the back seat of their car, they're like, okay, crap. We, didn't, we can't catch him in the act. Uh, but uh, what do we do? So they put him <laughs> in a cell in Burnaby. And uh, they put him in on burglary charges. Because they're like, we saw him burglarize like five houses. So we got him on that. And with his extensively long history of escape attempts. No bail. Right. And so then the higher ranking officers show up. And they're like, wow, Clifford?
1: back at it again yeah exactly (laughs) so here's the thing
0: normally when clifford would get caught like for the burglars or stuff he would just kind of give up and be like yeah whatever i did it Mm. and so they kind of walked into the room with him and they were like so so what happened here and normally clifford was with the police he kind of played this like meek role with them but the the clifford they met that day was a different man this was not fearful clifford as soon as these officers walk in he waits for them to all come in and he goes i'll let you know where the rest of the bodies are he's like i need you to pay me money that i can put into a trust for my son and my wife and the police are kind of like what
1: yeah what the fuck
0: and they're like well just say we believe you how much money do you think each of the bodies are worth and he goes ten thousand dollars per child no. Immediately, they think it's a scam. They're like, okay, we don't have the right guy. These younger officers got it wrong. He's just messing with us, you know. But they keep him, they hold him, and they go, well, we've got his car in impound because that's normally what happens when you get arrested. And so they decide not to respond to Clifford's offer, but they do decide to go and give his truck a look over. And that's when they find his little box of tricks under the front seat. The syringes, the drugs, the hammer, the spikes. Everything cleaned, meticulously. But definitely very, very suspicious. And they just can't find anything. There's no gas station ticket that shows him in the city where the kids were picked up. Or the kids went missing. I mean, they pull this truck apart. And then they find something wedged into the passenger seat. So far back... That it's touching the mechanism that allows the seat to recline. And it's a school notebook with the name Judy Cosma written on it in a young girl's handwriting. They actually stop everything. No interrogation, no nothing. And we're just like, okay, so we know that Judy was in his truck. They're like, he's going to agree and admit that he did it we just have to give him $100,000 they go back to the interrogation they give him cigars food anything to try and get him talking but he's not given anything and the only piece of evidence they have is this notebook and it's not enough but still they head over to the prosecutors and they bring up all the circumstantial evidence and on August 25th he's charged with the murder of Judy Cosma There's still this weird question in the air, though, about whether they should accept this weird deal. At this point, the police only have four bodies and 11 total missing children. They rip apart his house. They find nothing. No tapes, no items, no nothing. They investigate Joan. They find nothing. And then a man by the name of Corporal Fred Mail goes and pulls Clifford out of his cell for an interrogation. And when Clifford meets Corporal Mail, he's like, okay, this is the guy. This is the guy that gets stuff done. And so Clifford just says, 11 bodies for $100,000. And Mail repeats it back to him, like, for $100,000 in cash, you want to provide us with the bodies of the missing kids. And Clifford's like, not just the bodies. I'll give you a signed statement on each of them and evidence. I'll sign off on every one. So Corporal males like, listen, we can't just give you all this money based on your say. We would need some kind of assurance that you're on the level. And Clifford's like, you know, likewise, I want to make sure that Joan gets the money before we go any further and that you all aren't trying to trick me. So he's like, how about this? I'll give you a freebie. I'll tell you where this child is and give you the statement. You get the $10,000 in cash. And when we go to the scene, you call your men and hand that money over to my Joan and I'll call Joan to make sure she got it. And then we can get on with the rest of it. This conversation definitely settles it for the rest of the police that they have the right guy. Mm -hmm. But Corporal Mail, however, isn't fully ready to commit. So Corporal Mail's like, what about your lawyer? Like your lawyer is not going to just sit back and let you do this. And Clifford laughs at him. This is all being recorded. And Clifford's like, "This is my lawyer. He works for me. He does what I tell him to do." And then he asks, "He's like, so let's write a contract." And so here's what it says: "This is the undertaking of an agreement between RCMP, uh, that's the Royal Col- Canadian Mounted Police, and Clifford Robert Olson." Um. This is uh, this will be. Paid to This is paid by the RCMP to Mrs. Jones Olson for the following information, $10,000 cash for each body of a missing person up to seven bodies, $30,000 for information of four bodies which have already been recovered, which relate to the above seven other people missing. The agreement should be undertaken and shall be binding in law as not to disclose this information uh, in this agreement to the Canadian press. The following missing persons are covered in this agreement are covered in this agreement. Judy Cosma, Darren Todd Johnsrudd, Raymond King, Simon Partington, Ada Court, Louise Chartrin, Christine Weller, Terry Lynn Carson, Colleen Marion Dagnot, Sigrun Arn, and one identif- unidentified female. $10,000 will be paid to Mrs. Olsen, up to a total of the recovery of seven bodies. Clifford signs it, as does Corporal Mail. But Corporal Mail is like, listen, this has to be approved by somebody way higher up than me. He's like, I don't have permission to give $100,000 to you. And after the interview's over, Clifford calls Joan. And he's like, listen, you're going to be rich. You're going to live in the lap of luxury for the rest of your life. Thanks to the deal that I just made. And Joan's Mm. like, what are you talking about? The police were just here. They tore up the house. They keep asking me all these terrible questions about you. And he's just like. This phone call is being recorded, but you're going to get a visit from my lawyer who's going to lay things out for you. Don't talk about anything over the phone, but you and Stephen are going to be well taken care of. So Corporal Mail takes this paper to the commanding officers, his commanding officers, and they're like, we don't have the ability to give him this. And so those guys take it to their superiors who look at it and are like, we don't have the ability to approve this. And it goes all the way up to the Attorney General, Alan Williams. The Attorney General is responsible for pretty much all of the criminal justice proceedings that happen in Canada. And Attorney General G- uh, Williams has a lot to think about. And he's like, listen, plea bargains and things of that nature aren't uncommon in our justice system. And there's background deals and backroom deals. Mm-hmm. He looks over Olson's history. And he's like, the police have paid him a fair amount of money over the years to be an informant. Is this any different? The problem and what really got stuck for him is that he doesn't want to be the one to, to give a criminal money right. for his crime. He also doesn't want to set a precedent that a criminal could turn themselves in for money because that's going to cause a huge mess, too. He knows the only way that he thinks he can even get close to having this greenlit is that there is absolutely no way Clifford Olson Jr. can ever leave prison ever again. And that would mean, because if he was allowed to leave again, that's the opportunity to kill.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, uh, Attorney General Williams looked over all the evidence and he agrees with the, the lower prosecutors. There's no way we're going to get a conviction with only circumstantial evidence. Even if they take the freebie and let the rest of the crime stand unsolved, the citizens of Canada aren't going to be happy about that either. Even with the signed confession, because there's still seven missing or six, there'd be six more missing people. And he's like, all right, well, Olsen said he'll never tell anyone. And if we can keep the police from leaking this, then maybe it'll be okay." He sits on it for a little bit, but ultimately he does sign the deal, but he doesn't like it. And he likes it even less when they bring Clifford into his office a couple days later. Clifford's wearing this snazzy suit and his lawyers are there. Joan is there. She's in a complete zombified state. Like Clifford's making jokes, laughing. A couple times uh, the Olsen lawyers actually ask Joan, does your husband know what he's doing? And Clifford's like, listen, don't worry about it. I know they're going to say horrible things. I didn't, it wasn't me who did that. I was drunk and high when those things happened. Which so doesn't, it was you. <laughs> which doesn't really change the situation for Joan because the man that she loves is about to admit to the world that he has raped and murdered 11 children. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the middle of the office, she just breaks down. Then Clifford. <sighs> starts telling people how he wants the money dispersed. how much is going to go to the lawyer for their fees, how much he's going to send to his parents. Uh, the rest was going to be put in a trust that Joan could control for the baby. And mind you, he asked for this in cash. So they actually have $100,000 in cash.
1: Oh, my God. They have to um, suitcases and stuff, too.
0: hmm They're know. in front of the attorney general. And he asks his lawyer, hey, do you think we can make any more money if I wrote a book? He's like, I'll call it Kiss Daddy Goodbye. What the fuck? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I told you. This is the most gall I think I've ever seen. But it, it's just, we're not even at the worst parts yet.
1: Oh, my God. He
0: offers to tell the lawyer everything. And the lawyer is actually, like, kind of grossed out. um, And he doesn't want to do any more work for Clifford Olsen after this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Attorney General Williams said that the whole scene made him sick and that he had made a deal with Satan himself. But after that, his day doesn't get much better because now they dress him up as a police officer in a disguise and then they have to drive him around British Columbia with Corporal Mail and four of the detectives in the first car. Clifford is having the best time ever. He's so excited. He's the center of attention and he is reveling in showing off his handiwork. And this is when... He explains everything, he every single detail, and those five men in the car with him have to sit with him as they are driving hours across Canada back and forth to get all these different bodies. And mind you, behind them are other police cars, uh, coroners, uh, tr- vans to to put the remains in to take them back. They did record all eleven confessions that day and he's talking about like the death rattles and the smells all the nasty stuff but ultimately uh, everybody is exhumed and the sites are secured they transfer the money to joanne and she puts it in her bank account um And ultimately the police have to admit in the end that without Clifford's confession, it's highly unlikely they would have found these bodies. Many of them were seriously decayed already because of where they were buried or where they were stored bodies in water bloat, which uh, totally ruins uh, decomposition. Um, Some of the soil where some of the bodies were buried, mummified the remains because of the peat that was in the soil, Some of the victims could only be identified through dental records because they had been so severely like their skulls were shattered. Um, All of them had to be identified by forensic pathologists. Um, And when the when the police realized that the victim who was unknown to them was the German Taurus, they were like, crap, we didn't even know she was gone because we didn't even know she was here. Wow. We never would have found her. Like, as far as her family was concerned, Sigrun just just hadn't come back from her trip yet. And even with her physical body and the description of what she looked like before she died, it still took the police months to get her official records from Germany so they could file her death properly and then send her remains back to her family in Germany. This is a very long day. And the police officers who have to sit with him all day are not happy because as part of his deal... He only wants to eat at steakhouses. So that's uh, three meals. in
1: McDonald's.
0: Three meals. <laughs> that's still too good for him. Three meals. I know, both. it really and is. And so he's eating baked potatoes and T-bone steaks and drinking soda and happily chatting with the waitress. And I can just imagine these five officers just mm. unhappy to be here. In the meantime, it's- Joan is devastated. All of this goes on without the media knowing anything. Corporal Mail called in all the favors that he had. The attorney general also called in all the favors and they told the media, you cannot report on this because if the citizens of Canada know that we just paid a serial killer a hundred grand, there's going to be hell to pay. So a couple of days later, he asks for the attorney general Clifford asks, and so the attorney general shows up and it's just like, I thought our business here was done. And Clifford says, <laughs> well, listen, I gave you the first one for free. And I gave you the next set for 100000 What if I told you there were another 20 bodies and I'll pay you $5,000 a piece for those? Uh-huh. Corporal Mail is here when this is going on. And he's like, I don't know if this is true or not. But they write it down. And they're like, uh, you know what? Just like last time, we got to talk to our superiors. We got to do. And here's the problem. They thought this investigation was over. Nope. Now it's not. And the problem is there are a butt ton of people missing in North Mer- North America. People traveling into Canada. Canadians travel into America. And it's in Thoroughly possible that he could have picked up any number of hitchhikers and killed them. Even just accounting for the people who are only missing in British Columbia, we're still talking potentially a thousand people and any one of them could have been hits. I mean, at one point, Canada did have a highway serial killer. And right now, people believe that there is another highway serial killer who is killing indigenous women. And that's in the 2020s. So the police are like, all right we're going to look through every single unsolved murder and see if there's any potential, like any validity that there could be another 20. Right. So they try and narrow it down to his behavioral patterns because they figure they find the method of the madness. Like even though there was no pattern, the lack of a pattern is a pattern.
1: Mm, Yeah. It makes one.
0: Um, even when they scale it down to the time period when he was. So, at first, they, they just get in the area where he was living, and then they, they kind of triangulate his movements and where he was driving. They get 17 young women and six girls. And then they scale it down to the time between November 17th and July 1981. And they have 20 potential victims. So Corporal Mail comes back to the prison. And he's like, all right, let's talk about this. And this time Clifford's kind of mad. He's had to wait now. And he's just like, you know what? I changed my mind. It's back up to $10,000 a body. And then very quickly he kind of catches himself. And he's like, you know what? No worries. The bodies will still be there when you come back around. Wow. He actually, quote, so he says, fucking... you always know where to find me. Oh Meaning God. jail.
1: I want like to
0: Now, pending the trial, he gets put in jail. Thing is, he can't blend in. Everyone knows why he's there. And uh, child predators aren't exactly treated very nice in any prison. The prisoners this time throw lit cigarettes at him. They throw trash into his cell when he's sleeping. They knock him around, knock him over, push him. uh, Finally, it gets to a point where they have to put him in solitary uh, all but two hours a day. He's allowed to exercise for one hour when nobody else is in the yard, and that's it. The rest of this time that he's by himself, he's calling up reporters and complaining about the conditions in the prison. He says, I'm living like a dog. And when they returned my suit that I wore, when they brought me into custody, someone took off all the buttons and wrote baby fucker on it. You know, just to remind him why he was there. Probably a guard. Probably a guard.
1: Definitely a guard.
0: So, of course, like... He gives all the local newspapers all the details. And he's like, you know, and he he does this because he's going to, he wants to threaten the attorney general that like, you know, I'm going to tell them what happened and you're going to get in trouble if you don't give me another hundred grand. But what he doesn't know is that the press already know and they've already been paid off which is why they haven't been writing about it already. Um, And pretty much the attorney general tells them, listen, if you talk about this at all, I'm going to hold you in contempt of court. Um, This is prejudicial knowledge. Um, And essentially they're worried that if this goes to trial and that information is in the papers, it will skew the jury. It'll cause a mistrial. The date for the first trial is set, but they actually don't end up having to have a jury. He just straight up is like, "Ah, I don't need a jury. I did it. He even cried while he confessed to all of the murders. Um, after the court, court reads out all the charges. He says guilty. Uh, Justice Harry McKay was the presiding judge who had a lot to say about Clifford Olson Jr. Uh, specifically, he said no punishment that any civilized country could impose would be adequate for the severity of your crimes. You should never be granted parole for the remainder of your days. It would be foolhardy to let you at large. And he was sent to Kingston Penitentiary where he was to spend the rest of his natural life. And for a moment, it seemed like the media circus was over. Mm -hmm. And then one newspaper published the deal because they're like, there's no trial. The trials, there's no contempt of court anymore. The public is outraged. The families are outraged. There's an immediate campaign to try and force them to return the money to Canada or for it to to be given to the families of victims. But Jones, like, I'm not giving this back. Attorney General Williams is public enemy number one or public enemy number two. Uh, Clifford is number one. And he tells like. Williams tells the press like this was a unique case. I don't think anything like this will happen again. The decision was not easy for me to make. His crimes are so horrible. Um, they shouldn't be revealed. I don't want to dwell on the details. Um, Robert Chance, who was one of Clifford's attorneys, even came out saying that this was politically insane. Members of Parliament contemned Attorney General Williams and pretty much told him, Your career is over. From that point on, the police tried to seize the money from Joan. But discovered it was already gone.
1: Damn. She spent all of it? or no, she, she moved, it? moved
0: it. There's a public oh. inquiry into what happened. They're trying to find any level of wrongdoing on the side of the police. The Justice Department, the coroner, they look at everybody. They investigate everyone. Then, of course, there becomes a discussion of, why didn't you guys pursue him earlier? What the hell were you doing when he raped the prostitute? The first murder happened around the same time. Joan is getting harassed by the press because she accepted the money and one paper, she just goes, I'm a good person. I can look myself in the eye in the mirror and not feel ashamed. And I kind of understand because she was a victim, too, in some ways. This went all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court could not take the money from her. The contract was airtight. Just because it's immoral doesn't make it illegal. Of course, Clifford is. Having a great time. He is sending little bits that he wrote himself to the local papers. One of the guards was quoted in a newspaper saying uh, they said that they heard him say, if I gave a damn about these families, I wouldn't have killed their kids. Eventually, the uh, prison cuts off Clifford's communication. He's not allowed to talk to anybody, not even his family. Um, but he still manages to pass off his stories and writings to other inmates, who pass it off to the press. It got to the point where some of his victims' families were pursuing civil cases against him because of what he was saying publicly. They started suing him for injuries, losses. Um, but the problem is, like they won those civil cases, but he had nothing. Nothing was in his name. Even the house they own was in Joan's name,
1: and God, she was it's terrible.
0: Yep. He could work the rest of his days in prison and never make enough money to pay what he owed to those people. And for a little bit of time, he's quiet. He spends time focusing on parole. Oh, which is another annoyance because in almost every country in the world, natural life when you get life in prison tends to be about 25 to 30 years. Um, that's why in some more of the heinous cases in the United States, they'll do multiple life sentences to make sure that someone doesn't leave. Right. Um, so, Clifford's first parole hearing is in 1997. He applied under a clause called the Faint Hope Clause, or Canada Criminal Code S.745.6, which is a statutory provision that allows a prisoner who's been sentenced to life in prison to be eligible for parole once they've served 15 years. Hmm. He is Hmm. denied. Of course. Canadian law also says if you've been convicted of first-degree murder, you can apply for parole after you've served 25 years. So on July 18th, 2006, he tries again. He's also denied. Also, around this time, he makes a bunch of bizarre claims, like he said that the U.S. granted him clemency. Um, because he knew things about September 11th, oh my God. which made no sense, because like he was in prison. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, after that, under Canadian law, he is allowed to request parole every two years.
1: Come on.
0: And he does it in 2010, like every two years, and they refuse him every single time. Now, in 2010, he's the source of another bit of controversy when the media find out that he's receiving government benefits from Canada while in prison, How's that
1: even possible? which
0: amounted to about 1,100 Canadian dollars. It's not a lot of money, but like it's still like 900 bucks U.S. Right.
1: That's more than you should be. getting. And
0: also, he's now old enough to receive OAS, which is the Old Age Security. So like a pension and pretty much in Canada, people who meet residency requirements. And of course there's like the length of time you lived in Canada and are 65 or older, you receive that pension. And so January 1st, 2010, Clifford was 70 years old. He's also eligible to receive something called the guaranteed income supplement, which awarded was awarded to pensioners who had low income and all this money is being held for him in a trust. So he didn't have access to it while he's in prison, but people are super mad.
1: That yeah, he saw these rights. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: So the Canadian Taxpayer Federation ended up testifying before the Committee for Human Resource Development and they passed something called Bill C31, which terminated pension benefits for prisoners. The organization showed up with 46,000 signatures from British Columbia requesting that Clifford never receive these benefits. Mm-hmm. Prime Minister Stephen Harper had the government look into it and in June 1st, the government terminated his payments based on the fact that his crime was horrific. In September of 2010, he sent one of those checks to the Sun Sun Media, uh, to a reporter with a note asking the reporter to forward the check to Stephen Harper's campaign for re-election.
1: I hate Clifford.
0: Yeah, in September of 2011, he is discovered to have terminal cancer. Uh, He was transferred to Laval Hospital in Quebec, where he died a few weeks later at the age of 71 on September 30th. From the age of 17, Clifford Olson spent only 1,501 days outside of a prison cell.
1: That's crazy.
0: If we take into account the total number of murders he says he's committed, it would amount to about 10 a day. Um, a lot of people say that he fits a lot of the classic psychopath checklist. And to be fair, when they gave him the psychopathy checklist, uh, he scored 38 out of 40.
1: You're not supposed to get that high.
0: <laughs> no, no. High is bad on this this assessment. Uh, and it's a tool to ass- assess institutionalized people. And uh, yes, well, he definitely did have some antisocial and narcissistic tendencies, is very, very manipulative and it's very let and he wasn't stupid. so it's potential that he could have manipulated those tests that they gave him. He wouldn't be the first serial killer to do so. Again, Ed Kemper realized how to right. cheat the tests right. and give them the answers that they wanted. Clifford got high on attention and being more and more outrageous gave him more attention. Um, as far as his relationships, I think he liked Joan. He liked that she did nice things for him. He didn't mind that they had sex. But I sincerely doubt he l- ever loved her. Uh, he's one of those few people I think never loved anybody. Um, one time while he was in prison, a reporter asked him, what do you think about Hannibal Lecter? And Clifford said, he's made up. I'm the real thing.
1: That's gross. That's gross.
0: Yeah. Over the year. Yeah. Over the years, people were very upset with Joan when she said she still loved her husband. Um, She did divorce him in March of 1985 Mm -hmm. and pretty much kind of lived mostly in obscurity, occasionally responding to the press over the years. Um, She would tell the press that she never actually got to keep any of that money because she spent so much time in court Due to the the families of the victims, that it kinda just got cannibalized by court fees. Mm-hmm. And as for little baby Steven Olson, mm-hmm. we absolutely don't know what happened to him. And I hope he lived a life where he didn't have to know what his dad did. Right. I hope Joan changed both their names and they moved on and had a perfectly normal life.
1: We can only hope.
0: Yep. And that's what I got for you today.
1: Well, that was infuriating.
0: I told ya.
1: <laughs> the, the, the part where he wanted to write a book. And, and the title of the book. I'm gonna... Oh, God.
0: Oh, yeah. About saying goodbye to his son.
1: <sighs> Bruh. No. Okay? No. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Let's talk about cryptids, shall we?
0: Yes, let's talk about some cryptids. Okay,
1: awesome. We're going to do that. Okay, so today's creepy whatever, it comes... uh, Actually, Brittany, you wanted to talk about this um, a few weeks ago, actually. Oh? Do you remember who you were? Mm. (laughs) No. I was going to (laughs) say... Uh... Okay, um. So this 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 cryptid or creature has a very very true tale to it. Um, it's from Kentucky, um, Louisville.
0: Is that the cool alien cryptid?
1: I, I don't think it's cool. Alien.
0: That looks like it's wearing
1: a dress. No, are you still talking? No. The, <laughs> the Flatwoods I Monster? Love,
0: I love the Flatwoods Monster! You're not talking I about wanna, I want to dress up like the Flatwoods Monster. I want to cosplay as the Flatwoods Monster. I want to dress up like the <laughs> alien in a dress!
1: Not every cryptid is the Flatwoods Monster. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! We're gonna get you a dress that looks like it's damn flat with monster. Okay, we're gonna do it for you. <laughs> I think it's great. Oh my god!
0: Okay, so Kentucky from Kentucky,
1: yeah. Um, okay.
0: Kentucky Cryptid? I didn't. I don't think of anything from Kentucky other than chicken. Oh my god. <laughs> sorry y'all in kentucky who listened
1: <laughs> oh my god okay so isn't there a sheep squatch from a uh, fallout okay so in kentucky there's a there's there's this um railroad underpass right okay it's called a, a trestle bridge okay and the name of this trestle bridge is called the Pope lick trestle bridge does the pope lick monster ring any bells to you nope god damn it. <laughs> i'm
0: sorry no, it's okay. the pope like
1: <laughs> yeah it's something like i i remember you were talking about it the one day because you were looking at it and you're like oh my god this thing is fucking weird like okay there's this pope lick monster it has different um origin stories mm-hmm. um and i can there's one that's like like the, the urban legends of this thing is weird um the, the first one is like it's a it's basically
0: i definitely didn't say anything about the public the guess... public monster looks just like a, a it honestly looks like what people say demons look like
1: It. I just I remember like I don't know when it was, but you were talking about it and you were looking it up. I swear you were. This is this is not. I mean, a dream. there's a lot
0: of there's like um trail cam things that are supposed to look like it. Yeah, I love trail cam footage. Um, it's awful and super terrible. But anyway, he lives under this one particular bridge.
1: Apparently, uh, so there there are three different like versions of his urban legend um i'll talk about i'll talk about the one in detail because that's like the main one but the other two is um one found a
0: real cool drawing of him under a bridge
1: yeah um one is that he was i guess a a a like a twisted this is one reading: a twisted reincarnation, reincarnated form of a farmer who sacrificed goats in exchange for satanic powers. Um,
0: See, it's just some demon stuff.
1: Okay, that's that's one version. Another version, Sam
0: and Dean, get in here. Oh my
1: god! Another <laughs> <clears throat> another version is that he is um, a skinwalker. He
0: it does look very similar.
1: But the main one is that when I when I looked it up, it was, this was like the main story, is that he was a a half goat, half human hybrid that was a circus freak, and mm. who escaped because he was being mistreated, and he went to live underneath this this tri- um. This over under, overpass, this train overpass, and that is the one I'm going to read to you. It's a, it's a you know it's a it's a tale, urban legend tale. <laughs> so I'm going to read that, and oh God, it's long. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, you are the one in control I, of your own segment of the podcast. I
1: though. know, and I want to read if it. If you
0: want to shorten it, go ahead and shorten it.
1: And we'll see. We'll see. But I don't think I will, just because. Okay. <clears throat> so, one thunderously stormy night, while I stopped in a small town near Beltsville, Maryland, the circus bearded lady, Madam Bristell, discovered an abandoned infant left in a hay-filled crate outside her tent. The child was severely malformed with stubs protruding from its forehead and misshapen legs that ended in what looked more like cloven hooves uh, than than human feet. She took the poor creature in and gave it food and shelter. One look at the twisted abomination and Carno... Um, Yeah, I can't pronounce this. It's shl hill Okay? That's what his uh-huh. name is, the colonel. That's his name. He's the colonel. Um, and his colonel, he knew that he had struck gold. He had found a starry attraction for his freak show that would make him rich beyond his wildest dreams. He took the child and raised it in captivity, never letting it out of his sight or its cage until it could be fully exploited. ...for its grotesque appearance. The beast grew in size and strength over the years. Its stubs becoming full sized horns... ...and its temperament as nasty as the temperament... ...given to it by the cruel circus carnies... ...charged with keeping it imprisoned. <clears throat> it spent most of its life chained to the wall of a cage... ...inside a circus train whipped brutally daily to keep it subdued and submissive, and fed only gruel and leftover scraps from the the midday vendor grease pits. One fateful night, during a thunderstorm as violent as the one on the night of its birth, the circus train was passing through Fisherville on its way to a performance in Louisville, Kentucky. When a bolt of lightning struck the tracks, causing the train to derail just ahead of the trestle over Pope Lick Creek. The twisted wreck probably killed most of the colonel's crew instantly, but not all of them. Okay. Since body parts were found as far away as two miles from the crash site. What is known for a fact is that the Goat Man, which is what they called him, um, survived the tragic train wreck, finally set free from its life of torture, exploitation, and imprisonment, and it took reven- revenge on the survivors by ripping them to bloody shreds. The colonel's body was never found, and it was it is suspected that a few of his cutthroat crew of clowns, circus freaks, and dangerous animals... Mm-hmm also may have survived the deadly accident but were never found i thought
0: you were gonna say the clowns killed (laughs) that's honestly where i thought that was going
1: i just love the name the cut the cutthroat crew of clowns i love it (laughs) okay due to the numerous deaths Missing persons, deer, and livestock mutilations and goat man sightings that have been reported in the ensuing years, there is good reason to believe the goat man of Pope Lick never left the area. He is believed to have taken a residence in either an underground cave or a ramshackle hut somewhere in the wooded area near the train trestle. Uh, his inbred hate of cruel humanity has made him a bloodthirsty and dangerous beast to be avoided at all costs. Those who dare to trespass—God, tr- uh, those who dare to trespass into his domain—have met their fate at his hands. Uh, the Courier Journal records at least two confirmed deaths, deaths in 1987 and 1988, and many injuries in close calls. <clears throat> Attributed to the Pope Lick monster and his protected trestle. The trestle raises ninety feet ninety feet? Yeah, ninety feet above Pope Lick Creep Creek and stretches seven hundred and seventy-two feet across to the other side. Although incapable of human speech, the goat man is said to be able to mimic human voices and has been known to call out the names of those who have climbed to the top of the trestle in order to lure them out onto the tracks, just as an oncoming train is coming around the bend to steal their their doom. Oh, no. I'm I'm sorry. I'm getting into it.
0: (laughs) Keep going. Keep going. I'm listening.
1: (laughs) On weekend nights during the month of October, and especially during the cycle of a full moon, the goat man is said to be most active in the woods and hills surrounding the public trestle. Those who have attempted to drive beneath the trestle at the stroke of midnight have reported being chased by the Beast, who can run at speeds of nearly 60 miles per hour. And more than one report has claimed the loss of their car door handle or bloody claw prints left on their car door after a pursuit. Um, in the mid-1970s, rumors of a, satan- a satanic cult and demonic uh, rituals began circulating in the same area along Pope Lake Road. Uh, and reports of missing dogs, cats, and other domestic animals were suspected of falling prey to satanic blood sa- uh, ceremonies. Um, a mysterious farm known as the Four Winds, down the street mm-hmm. a few <laughs> a few miles from the train trestle, <laughs> were suspected of being owned by a group of satanists. Satanists, God, satanists who worship the public monster as the living embodiment of uh, how do you pronounce this? Baphomet. Baphomet. Baph. B- 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 baphomet yeah um, oh yeah yeah yeah.
0: the the main guy the main big head yeah
1: uh the goat of mendez himself a mock a mocking of the image of a lamb as the embodiment of christ who died for the sins of humanity blah blah blah. um the (laughs) the four winds farm was surrounded by a red and black painted fence through the 1980s and into the 1990s with a sign that the sign at the front gate warning trespassers will be persecuted um, strange tribal drum beats and chanting were often heard in the woods behind the barns farm um, that's I'm gonna read about that for right now um, so basically there's a satanic cult and this public monster was a circus freak who escaped during a a, a, a train uh, crash. Uh-oh. Now, I said there was some truth into in in this story, right? Okay. Yeah, a little bit of truth. Um, so there is a trestle in Louisville, Kentucky. It's over the Pope Lick uh, Creek Park. Mm-hmm. Is by the Pope Lick Park, whatever Pope Lick Road, and all that good stuff. Pope Lick. It's just La Pope Lick. Okay. Um, yeah, I saw
0: it. <laughs> I also saw a news story that said a kid fell off of it and, died. and That's
1: where I'm going with this. So this this trestle apparently it's a thing for either tourists or I guess not local kids but or local people, but like a lot of tourists they go there to mm-hmm. like look for this public monster not thinking that this like because the you know, tourists tourists go there they ask for you know what's spooky around here what's you know what's what's exciting in you know to do in publiclik or louisville Kentucky <laughs> um and you know you know if they talk to the wrong people they're like oh you know there's this trestle you know the trestle is right all right well if you go up this trestle right over there um you might you might be able to Meet a goat man, and if you got to stand at the top of the trestle, though, so if you stand at the top of the trestle, goat man will appear at a strike of midnight. All right.
0: Is this still? This isn't still a working trestle.
1: It right? is a working trestle.
0: Okay. See, that's my thing because. Trestle is very thin bridge that only fits a train. It only nothing else.
1: No, nothing else. There's no walkway. Nothing. The only thing that goes it's on
0: just made for train passage. Absolutely, and it's only one way.
1: Yep. And so, like these tourists, they go here, and they're like, "Okay, well, I don't see it." And you know, they're you know these these people are like, "Oh, don't worry, it ain't working." That train don't go by no more. Um, But the train goes by a lot more um, than you think. Mm. Um, And some people have died because of this. Um, Some people have... Well, I don't think they've they've gotten hit by the train. But, you know, they've, they've had to hang from the trestle as they see this train coming. As they're walking on it. So they have to drop down to hang on it. And some people... Can't hang that long, and it's ninety feet above the ground.
0: It's also like a lot of them are above water.
1: Yeah,
0: um, to cover like a body, like a river or something, and they'd probably be more likely to survive. But I'm looking at this one in particular. It's in above Carolina. a road. It's just just land, just concrete. Yep, beneath you. It's
1: right above a road, and people like uh, uh, there. I was just reading one that. Some guy and his fiance, I guess, you know, they were doing this and he had to hang, but she couldn't make it in time. So she and she fell and she died. And he said, this is like the worst. That was like the worst day of my life. It was like the worst thing that happened to me. Um,
0: the one I saw was from 2019. A 15 year old uh, dies. And it was sad because it was like, yet again, another accident on the Lick trestle. Mm hmm. And I'm like, dang, this is common. Apparently, uh, two little girls were on the track, and they did not hang. They got hit. Ugh. Yeah, one died, and the other was uh, in the hospital for a while. Yeah. Um, I was... It says in 2016, Ohio tourist Rockwell Bain died in search for the public monster. The uh, trussle is seven hundred and forty-two feet long.
1: Yeah, yeah, and
0: um, it is ninety foot drop at the center and twenty or thirty near the end. I can imagine that. Please. Uh, Roquel Bain was also hit, and fell. She died on the scene. It's uh that's the lady. Yeah, that's her. The uh, her boyfriend was the one who survived. Yep, yeah. Yep. Her name was Roquel. Okay. Raquel. Uh,
1: yeah. Um. Bomber, there. Are no sightings? Well, there are oh, no actual reported sightings.
0: Apparently, um, a retired train engineer said that while he was, uh, I guess, um, the, he routinely went down that path, uh, there were 43 collisions while he worked there over 34 years. Oh God, can
1: you imagine?
0: So at least once a year, somebody died on that trestle while he was working there.
1: It, it claims that I think I found the number... Um,
0: the total number? Yeah, he was just saying his time.
1: Yeah, it, it's. It was
0: 34. It was probably more because they're still doing it.
1: Yeah, it's it's not a thing that's probably going to stop anytime soon. Um, unfortunately. Now I don't have the number.
0: No. Yeah, here's the thing. I'm not super interested in meeting a goat man uh, in general.
1: No, no, because we see like depictions of. Um, Satan like the devil. So, I mean... Well,
0: like I said, yeah, like you said, these are all very close to um, devil people. Um, Goats aren't exactly all that nice to begin with. This is true. Like, you're worried about goats and goats are trash? (laughs) Um, Listen, they're aggressive. They eat your clothes
1: oh shit yeah goats are trash
0: <laughs> so i'm just saying like he's probably got a bad disposition if he's part goat
1: oh i you know what i think i remember what you're talking about when we first brought this up and yes. it's that there is a movie about it it's called the, Le- oh. the legend of the pope Lake monster it's only 16 minutes though um and it came out in 1988
0: Interesting. Yeah.
1: I'm not sure if there are any other movies about it. No, hey, yep. Nope.
0: It doesn't sound super honestly it's it's kind of sorta reminds me of the the video game, The Quarry, like their sort of story oh, about yeah. a situation that happens with a freak show.
1: Yes, okay, yes, yes. Um, yeah only
0: it's a different kind of monster but i was like oh that's similar i wonder if that's where they got the idea from
1: oh interesting maybe and like i would rather meet the sheep squatch than meet the Public monster just saying um
0: so question sheep squatch is it just a giant s- sheep okay
1: so the sheep squatch is kind of like so you haven't played Fallout seventy six, so you haven't seen it. Um, it's kind-
0: I haven't seen one in the game. It's
1: it's a very furry, large type of. They call it a sheep squatch because it's big. For one, it's big like the. These Sasquatch. aren't
0: nice at all.
1: No, they're, they're big. They have.
0: It's got a skull face. It's terrible it's looking. Som- I think sheep squatch, and I'm like cute. <laughs> No, fluffy. No.
1: They're just very hairy and they have mm. they have sheep or ram's horns as, as you know over their heads and yeah, the, the,
0: Oh, I don't want to meet these guys in the game. They're
1: not fun to fight. I'll tell you that for right now. Um don't don't fight them alone. Oh,
0: I remember hearing you be mad about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, um so here's one more thing. So you remember that okay. that that cryptid love uh coloring book I have?
0: Uh-huh.
1: So, there's there's a thing in here for the Pope Lick monster.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, do you want me to read his dating profile for you?
0: Sure, let's see who he <laughs> wants to be with.
1: Okay. So, the tagline says, looking for someone on track. Ah. <laughs> I love it. And uh, its name is Slick the Pope Licker. It's- Ew. Ew. <laughs> turn-ons uh 50 filthy fishnet stockings um turn off is mondays yes okay uh, favorite movie is the two popes uh okay yeah uh and i guess their, their profile paragraph they have can you feel that a vibration a connection i promise you this is not the hypnotic suggestion just take a little stroll over by those train tracks. You'll be fine. Promise. What do you say? Cat's got your tongue? Co- goat has you by the throat? This sheep has come to put you to sleep. Ha 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 I'm just messing with you. So what are you doing Friday night?
0: Oh my goodness.
1: <laughs> I love this thing so much. Yeah. And then yeah, it has a picture of it, of course, because it's a coloring book. But like, yeah, the picture is basically—it's not even like a, a a goat person. It's it's like a demon. It just looks like a demon, like a demon on a stripper pole. If that—that's right. that's the that's only way I can explain this how it looks. Um, Who. <laughs> that was read. Uh,
0: well we had a nice a nice podcast today
1: yes yes
0: if you're still here with us thank you so much for listening
1: mm-hmm. and uh
0: hope you have a good weekend
1: yep see you guys thank you